You're listening to The Upland Rookie, a podcast presented by Upland Brits, B Pro Kennels, Final Rise, and a Nook Shook Professional Dog Food. And on today's episode, I sit down with my good buddy, Mike Thompson of Upland Knife Company. We chat a whole bunch of bird dogs, his journey into uplands, and he shares some of his knowledge with us. Big thanks to our title sponsor, B Pro Kennels. B Pro Kennels is a small business creating ultra high quality and custom dog boxes for the gun dog owner like you and I. No matter how big your string of dogs, B Pro Kennels will make sure you have a box that fits your needs for you and your gun dogs. With an innovative storage design and built-in solar panel and battery bank for quick access to charging accessories like dog collars, lights, fans, you name it. This is a dog box unlike anything you've seen before. Check them out at bprokennels.com. Oh, and they're made right here in the USA. And this is presented by Anook Shook Professional Dog Food, the world's highest energy dog food, period. Anook Shook's dense formulations ensure your pup in training and your seasoned bird dog get what they need to succeed in the field. High protein for muscle recovery and retention, high fat for quick access to much needed energy. Anook Shook works hard so your dogs can work harder. Check them out at anookshookpro.com. This podcast is also presented to you by Final Rise. All good things start with a solid foundation. At Final Rise, all three of their premium upland vests are built around the foundational waist belt to provide you all-day comfort and endless customization. With a secure waist belt and thin, high-quality shoulder harness, this is the vest you can load down with birds and walk all day in. Final Rise is creating high-functioning upland gear that delivers comfort, balance, and a lifetime of memories. Check them out at finalrise.com. And this podcast is sponsored by Trinity Bretons, home of the Epignol Breton, also known as the French Brittany. All Trinity Breton dogs are from champion bloodlines that are field-tested and family-approved. For over 33 years, Trinity Bretons has worked to offer you the best-bred Epignol Breton in the country. Trinity offers puppies, the Trinity Upland Academy with George Hickox, Started Dogs, Stud Services, and a whole lot more. Check them out at trinitybretons.com. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Upland Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Will Larson, and so good uh, to be back with you guys for another episode. Um, just recorded this one the other day uh, with my buddy, Mike Thompson. Uh, you may know Mike over uh, on Instagram as Upland Knife Company. Um, he's a great guy. Um, and he's putting out some, some fantastic uh, custom-made knives uh, that are, are super cool. So you should check those out at uplandknifecompany.com. But more importantly, I think uh, Mike's just a great guy. Uh, he's got a lot of experience, knowledge, um, and has a really good way of, of sharing that with others. And uh, so we have a good conversation. Um, uh, we get into a whole bunch of stuff. It's, it's a wide range. I thought about breaking this up into two parts, but uh, we're just going to let this roll as one episode. Um, so again, Mike, I appreciate your time uh, sharing that with us today. Um, before we jump into the episode, one thing I've uh, gotten a few questions on over the last uh, probably couple weeks, um, as we're getting, we're getting colder here in Colorado, uh, I know across the country, I mean, we got blizzards happening up in Montana and North Dakota and all that stuff. So I know it's been cold for a while, probably for some of you. Um, you may hear me shivering a little bit in my garage right now. I think it's about 25. 
out here. But uh, a couple questions uh, as people messaged me about were uh, what I do with my dogs um, in the winter um, around the house. And so um, a lot of you have seen that I, uh, I have a couple outdoor dog runs. Um, I've sectioned off a side of my house that I have uh, another dog run. Um, it's very large, um, mostly for Gage. And so um, they're like, hey, what do you do? How do you keep them warm? What are some kind of some do's and don'ts um, with dogs in the winter, being outside mostly? And so I just thought I would just cover that briefly. Um, again, no, uh, this is no uh, expert advice, I guess. This is, again, what I've learned personally, what I've um, talked with other folks about um, who have kept dogs <laughs> for many, many more years than I have. But again, it's kind of some things I've learned. Uh, maybe it's helpful for you. Um, so starting off, um, my uh, my wife runs a uh, in-home business out of our house. And so um, she's got a lot going on, the kids. Um, she just does not have time to um, really have our dogs inside with her throughout the day. Um, it's just one more thing she would have to think about. <laughs> and um, it's, it's just not fair to her. And uh, so we kind of agreed when we got all these dogs that it'd mostly be outside dogs. And um, so my dogs are inside about only, I'd say 10% of the time, honestly. Um, they'll come in the morning, like, like it's about 5.30 right now. Um, I had them inside with me for about 10 minutes, drinking coffee on the couch, and then they're back outside. And so um, my dogs are mostly outside dogs. Um, that doesn't mean when they're inside, they're, they're nuts. Um, again, they've, they've been inside enough that uh, they kind of know the routine. Uh, they have a, uh, the living room and kitchen is kind of where they can go. Um, and that's, uh, uh, that wasn't, I guess, instilled in them when, when we, they were pups. So we didn't let them have free run of the house. And so they kind of know the drill when they are inside. Um, other than that, so on the side of our house, <clears throat> I, uh, a while back, kind of my first project when we moved in here was, was uh, fencing off the side of our house. Um, we have a side garage door that uh, that's kind of Gage's domain right now. Um, so put a bunch of pea gravel down. Um and he's got a dog uh, igloo out there, water pail, and that's about it. <laughs> that's his. That's his little little uh, kingdom out there. And uh, some of you ask why pea gravel. Um, uh, that's a great question. <laughs> Honestly, it's a great, great question. Uh, I guess I've seen other people do it. Um, I've seen other people with their dog runs with in uh, having pea gravel down. I know when they dogs pee and poop it, it kind of drains well um easy to clean up um yeah i mean i, I didn't have the the funds to do a concrete slab um so did, went with pea gravel um it's, it's been really nice uh, doesn't get super hot when the sun hits it um so pea gravel's what i've have uh chose to use for all of my dog runs but anyways so that's kind of what his setup is and then um the the other two, so Win and Mac, um, they're kind of on the other side of the house. Uh, I have two of those, uh, I think they're called Retriever Series dog runs. They're like eight, they're not like 10 foot by five foot or something like that, or eight, eight by five foot. Um, super nice uh, dog runs. I have those side by side. And again, pea gravel down, and then they each have a dog igloo. Um, so I guess the, the important thing here and kind of the, the meat of the conversation was going to be around like winterizing and and what's, what's kind of the routine for that and, and some do's and don'ts. Um, so uh, I guess first off with water. So they all have a water pail and uh, wintertime, surprise, surprise, water freezes. <laughs> so um, so summertime, they, um, they all have their, their big, I think it's like a six or nine quart 
water pail. Well, wintertime, right about this time of year, I need to do this still, um, they each have a, a heated water uh, pail. And so I run some extension cords, um, kind of staple them up high, run them alongside the house, and then drop them down um, and hang them off uh, just a little, a little hook. And uh, so those, those have been a lifesaver. Um, again, for the first year or so, I was kept having to like dump water, bring water in at night, and then put it back out in the morning so it wouldn't freeze. Um, <clears throat> so the heated water pails have been super nice. I think they're like 35 bucks or something on Amazon uh, or Amazon or Murdoch's maybe. I forget where I got them, but uh, not super expensive and uh, has been a really, really nice thing. I'm not having to deal with frozen water and and ice and all that. So um, that's been super nice. Um, All of their, uh, all of their dog houses get, um, so last year I did straw and this year I did cedar chips. Um, I'm already noticing the cedar chips are a bit more messy than the, uh, the straw last year. And so I may go back to straw. Um, Jeremy actually sent me um, cedar, oh crap, what are they called? Cedar swirls or something? Cedar, oh, I, forget, I forget what they're called. But it's like long strings of cedar, uh, cedar wood. And uh, he says a lot less mess. And so I may pull the trigger and buy some of those. I don't think I can find them locally. At least I haven't yet. And uh, so there's a site he, uh, I think Lion Country Supply maybe, um, sells them. So I may look into those um, just for less mess, um, or I might go back to the straw. Um, anyways, keep it in there for warmth. Um, dogs and curl up. Mac actually figured out really quick. Um, this is the difference between Mac and Gage. So Gage back in the day, he didn't go in his igloo for like two years, I feel. <laughs> he hated that thing. Mac, it was like day one. He's like, oh, I'll, I'll curl up in the igloo. That's, that's where I can keep warm and all that. So um, kind of funny. But um, yeah, so th- I, I like to throw something in there that, that some, some bedding, some, something to keep them warm. Um, those igloos, I think, do a nice job of, again, blocking the wind. Um, their body heat, they're going to get in there, uh, stay nice and warm. Um, and again, I'm not, they're not out there in sub-zero. They're not out there in 10 degree weather. Um, if they are, they're out there to go do their business and then they're going to go back inside. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of the run, I guess it's kind of the essentials, I guess. Um, summertime over each of the dog runs outside, I put a, uh, a sunshade tarp over. Um, it's kind of one that has like the, it blocks 80% of the sun so you can get airflow through. Um, when it rains, it doesn't get super heavy. Um, Gage has the same thing on the side of his, uh, with his dog run. So they all get those in the summertime and then I take those off about, I don't know, October ish here. Um, because, uh, yeah, start, start getting cold and snow and we don't need those tarps caving in. So those are in the summer, they come off for the winter time. Um, and then kind of the routine is, is they're out there. So, you know, they come in, uh, inside with me in the morning for maybe five or 10 minutes. Um, I put them out in their dog runs again, Win and Mac are separated, Gage is separated. Um, and then they're out there basically until they go to bed at night. And so, um, at nighttime, I, they don't sleep outside at night, um, no matter what the temp is. And so they have their gunner kennels in my garage. And so they all come in at night and, um, and go right in their kennels. And, uh, so that's been kind of the routine. It's, it's been the, uh, yeah, I guess the routine that's worked for me and and them. Um, so again, I'm sure there's lots of (laughs) different, different theories and people are like oh how dare you know dogs don't live in the house well yeah they don't my, my kids live in the house dogs live in the garage and outside so um 
Anyways, I think that's about it. Uh, I mean, they eat different places. I, I don't like to feed my dogs just in the same spot every time. Um, it's either one of two spots. It's either outside in their dog run or in their kennel. So that's kind of where uh, they eat, especially when they're pups. I like to switch it up a little bit um, where they don't get too dependent on one location where they're eating. So it's kind of nice having two spots um, where they eat. So anyways, again, just be smart about, I would say, temperature. Um you know, even, even in the garage, I have an electric, um, garage heater. Um, so when it, when it does get cold in my garage, I have a um, thermometer. And so if it's, if it's super cold, um, I have brought all their kennels inside at night and they've slept inside. If it's, um, below zero or some, some crazy temps where I feel the garage is again, probably not safe. And so I brought their kennels inside at night before, but they always, always sleep in their kennels, um, regardless. And, um, but again, I have the heater in the garage. So if it's, I don't know, I'm not going to throw temperatures out there, but if it's cold enough, I'll throw that heater on the garage. It's up in the ceiling. So it's, you know, again, I'm not, do not blow a freaking space heater on your dog. Um, or don't, you know, throw a Mr. Buddy heater on the garage and go to bed. Probably not a smart idea, but um, so yeah, just be smart about the, uh, the temps. Um, I've thrown blankets over their kennels before at night. If it's cold, um, again, keep that, that body heat in, uh, inside their kennel. So again, when it's super cold outside, super windy, if it's, you know, something where I don't feel safe out, then they're just going to go outside, do their business and then come back inside for the day, go back in their kennel. Um, so you just gotta kind of, again, manage what that looks like. Um, keep the dog safe, keep them comfortable. And, um, yeah, I think that's about it. So shelter, um, bedding warmth for their uh their shelter uh water tarp for the sun so yeah that's kind of that's kind of my setup um there's some things to consider uh maybe as you are looking into an outside dog run or, or what that looks like again some of you might ask why i keep them separated um i just i want my dogs as uh, a whole rabbit hole probably i i don't want a free-for-all going on um Again, sure, sometimes I'll, I'll throw them all together. I'll put you know, the two boys together, something like that, let them have fun for an hour and then separate them. Um, I just don't want a free-for-all going on 24-7. Um, I want my dogs to be able to learn how to relax. Um, it's not a, not a party <laughs> every second of every day. And so I want them to learn how to, they can be calm and chill and just just relax in their, in their dog run by themselves. Um, I don't want them thinking, Hey, every time I'm out here, we're wrestling and running and fighting and, and all this stuff. So I want them to just, just learn how to be chill and they have, and that's just how I like it. I don't want a, a ruckus going on in my backyard. And so, um, again, that's just kind of what I've done. Um, it's worked, worked pretty well. So anyways, long, long winded. So sorry, <laughs> this has gotten way longer than I intended, but I got a couple questions about it. So I said, Hey, that might be a good, uh, good thing to mention on the podcast. So without further ado, we are going to jump into episode 67 with Mike Thompson. Uh, you just put a deck system in, didn't you, in your uh, truck? Yeah. I love it. Do you? I wish I would have got one a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a good feeling when you get that uh, all in there and and dialed in with your stuff. Yeah, for sure. It wasn't as bad to install as I thought it would be. Like the parts just kept coming out of the box, and I was like, "Oh my god!" But, uh, <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna. I think I shot you a message when you were you were building it, and uh, yeah, you said it wasn't wasn't too bad. No, no, it wasn't bad at all. Like they even give you a candy bar, so if you you know, <laughs> they're putting those in the box you, now. What's that? I said they're putting those in the box. Yeah, it's one of those nut rolls. Oh, so if you, like, that's awesome. If you start crying and need a timeout, <laughs> you can 
munch on a candy bar. And, I just reached for uh, for a couple cans of beer when I was putting mine in. Oh man, I need every all all of my faculties for stuff like that. <laughs> I, was, I was putting mine in uh, in a in a blizzard, basically. Um, as you can see, my garage is not. I mean, it's filled with kid stuff and hunting gear, and so I, I backed my truck in as much as I could to the garage to try to get out from the snow. But I had to keep the door open then, and uh, snow was blowing in and freezing my butt off, and <laughs> trying to get this thing done at like midnight one day. How many uh, extra washers and screws did you wind up with? You know what? Um, a, a, a few, <laughs> a few. I don't, and okay. I, I hope that was extra <laughs> that they provided, but you know, I'm not. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still holding up. So, yeah, I'm not sure if they're. I, I just try not to think about it because I, I think I have. More than a few. Yeah. <laughs> but it's working out so far. As long as, long as you don't hear any rattling, right? You're, you're good to go? No, no, yeah. <laughs> the rest of the truck's rattling. Yeah, right. I think, I think it's a tank. But uh, anyways, Mike, let's, uh, let's dive in here. Um, put us on a map first. Where are you talking to us from? And uh, why don't you just give us a, a brief overview uh, about who Mike Thompson is? Well, right now I'm in uh, Hamilton, which is in the Bitterroot Valley, about an hour and a half south of Missoula, about an hour north of Salmon, Idaho. Um, been living here a few years. We moved we moved to Montana during the pandemic, which was a lot of fun. Okay. And uh, basically, just uh, been my dream to live in Montana, mainly to be be closer to bird hunting and get my dogs on wild birds. Uh, grew up in Washington State and the, on the west side by Seattle and all that, and there's some pretty good grouse hunting there. But that was about it for upland, unless you wanted to hunt planted pheasants. So sure. I'm used to driving. <laughs> so now, now you're like, wait, what do I do with all this extra time? Oh, I can hunt more. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm like, unless I'm grouse hunting, I'm literally at least six hours in any direction from where I need to be. So it mm. kind of all works out. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah, all we really have in the valley here is uh, rough and blue grouse, and then further down south in Idaho, you got checkers and huns. But okay, and you have to travel a little bit. It's a traveling. Yeah. Pardon me. Uh, you got to travel a little bit for to get to Idaho. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got to go through a pass, and then you know down down through the flats and stuff like that. Oh, so it's not bad. Yeah, I shouldn't yeah. complain. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's just mostly rough grouse hunting in the Bitterroot and. Um, you know, then, then sharp tails and stuff east is another four hours. So it's not bad either. Okay. Oh, so, um, you, so you do have to drive a little bit still. Still a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Again. It's not like it was when I was living in Washington. I had to get like two days to, to get to Eastern Montana. Oh yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's brutal. Um, so where, so where you're at, you're kind of more, you, I'm sorry, do you say the Northwest or Southwest? Of Montana, I think te- technically I'm like southwest. Okay, okay. Um, so are you more in like the mountain like, forest area? Pretty much, okay, yeah. Gotcha. Um, just kind of Idaho is just like a stone's throw away over the mountains. Okay, and uh, you know, lots of big game hunting. Like if you're a big game hunter, this is the place to be. Oh, sure. If you're uh, if you're serious about bird hunting, move a little further east. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> move east. Well, that's awesome, man. How's your, uh, how's your season been so far? It's been great. I've been, uh, do, been running my Gordon pup. He's been, he's been really coming into his own. 
Uh, been getting after grout, rough grouse and sharp tails. Haven't gotten to as many huns as I wanted to, just because I'm trying to steer clear of anything remotely that looks remotely like pheasant cover. Mm. Because I just don't want to deal with them. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing they're they're low on your list. Oh, uh, just for for a young pup, they're real low on sure. the list. Like he ended up getting into a whole bunch of them, and and uh, we're over on the far east side, and he ended up just running himself ragged oh, chasing geez. those things, and which kind of worked out because then the next cubby of sharp tails we got after he was like, I don't feel like chasing these. <laughs> just we'll just let these ones go. <laughs> he learned something. Yeah, and he's he's kind of been uh, been staying that way. Like he's like, yeah, I'm kind of just done chasing birds. Interesting. He sounds like he ran his little heart out, and he's like, eh, <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, yeah. That that week and a half in chasing sharp tails really just his his pads were thin by the time we got oh, back. Geez. But uh, but yeah, it's just mostly been sharp tails and and rough grouse so far. Okay. And uh, you've been doing pretty good good on the rough grouse. This year has been really good. Um, the early September, like I kind of like opening weekend, there was just birds everywhere, and I kind of, I kind of tuned it back because they're really young. Mm. Like all all the birds that I run into this season seem like they're they're totally against like the norm. Like they really? they hatch later than than in years previous, and like from the rough grouse to the sharp tails and the huns. Like I was shooting. I got into a covey of huns mid-September that were just like the size of robins. Oh, gosh. And it was like, okay, well, I don't need to bother these. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, the rough grouse has been really good. And then uh, it's kind of weird. Like, I don't know if I just haven't figured out Montana grouse yet or it's just the way things are going. But it's like you're just thick as thieves. And then by the end of September, they just disperse. Hmm. and. Then you're just finding like one or two here and there. Oh, well. So we'll see. I still have a lot to learn about the grouse here. Though. Oh, totally. Uh, with rough grouse, do so I know blue grouse, they'll reverse migrate. They'll go up higher. Do rough do the same as well or do rough kind of stay at the same elevation? I think they pretty much stay at the same elevation. Like they might move up or down depending on snowfall and stuff like that. Okay. I think like uh, the rough grouse in Washington State, would actually like if we get a good, good hard snow, uh, you know, it'd be raining down lower and snowing up high. I'd find all the birds up high in the snow, but then they'd move back down. Okay, okay. I think they kind of preferred to stay in the in the drier uh, snow, if you will, than rather being in the rain. But yeah. roughs are pretty much, you know, rough grouse cover looks the same no matter where you're at. Usually. Sure, sure. But, Interesting. And so I know you mentioned the, you've seen a lot of young birds early on in the season. Now, were you seeing that kind of on like Montana wide where you were hunting or again, did you get more rain more on the Western side than the East side, you think, or what was up with that? For, for me, Montana wide, like the definitely, uh, let me, let me rewind. So rough grouse and blue grouse, all the birds that I found were really just really young broods, you know, like the tails hadn't grown out yet or even, or even close and real small size. Eastern Montana, I was finding, uh, that to be the case with, uh, Hungarian partridge and sharp tails, but then like North central Montana, I don't know if it's because of the drought or what, but all the sharp tails I was finding were small cubbies and they were all mature birds. Hmm. 
Interesting. So I, I think they must have had a bad hatch or something. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's always so hard to tell just with, again, because I don't know. I'm sure there's years we can have a drought and it's still okay and they hatch early. So it's, it's hard to tell year to year. Yeah, it's almost easier to find them in the drought. Right. Because <laughs> it's just uh, everything's so isolated sure. and you can kind of, you know, instantly look across the, the vastness and see patches of green mm. where everything's brown. Totally, totally. Well, Mike, um, we're going to unpack a little bit more uh, about hunting, Montana, birds, all that, all that good stuff. But let's back up a little bit and uh, let's jump back into, I guess, your kind of your upbringing uh, and intro into upland hunting. Uh, <laughs> now, upland hunting, was that something you did when you were young and your family? Like uh, what what led you to, uh, to this love for chasing birds? So my, well, uh, teenage rebellion. Uh, <laughs> my family are totally anti-hunting you know it's it's murder to kill an animal but it's totally okay to you know get one that's wrapped in cellophane at the grocery store that doesn't count so so they're they're telling you this in the chick-fil-a drive-thru yeah right (laughs) and uh they're totally against not not totally against guns but like against guns and the the kind of like you know go with the crowd against guns that's part of the being the anti-whatever and so I think, like looking back on it, I, I kind of think um, I picked up an interest. Like I've always loved dogs. Dogs have been my thing. And then I saw a hunting show where they're using Springer Spaniels, I believe. And I was like, oh, my God, this sounds amazing. And so then I brought it up to my folks. And I think their reaction triggered with my, like, teenage hormones. And I, they're like, no, that's murder. And I was like, well, I have to do this now. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Instead of getting into drugs and other mischief, I got into hunting in a big, bad way. <laughs> That's awesome. So you're like, I'm just doing this. Yeah, I was a really stubborn kid. And I just, it was, my mom was more or less supportive after she realized that this isn't, this isn't going away. Sure. My dad totally against it still is. Wow. I don't really, we don't even talk Okay. Uh, because of that, but Ended up getting a Springer Spaniel. Like I did exactly everything you're not supposed to do. I just picked a dog out of a Craigslist ad and uh, got a Springer Spaniel pup. I think I was, I think I was like 13 or 14. Oh wow, you were young. Oh yeah, like I was, I was all in. (laughs) You're like, all right, give me a dog, give me a gun, let's go. Yeah, I was like full, like fully formed. Like I, I mean, it wasn't quite that easy. I had to like write book or write reports on why like hunting was okay or why I should do it. And I had to take like, uh, hunter safety. Oh, wow. as well so as, like, so the parents our, were, they were kind of, kind of helping you along. Like once they knew this wasn't going away, they, I mean, they were had, had to kind of yeah, I think they, help you in they, some they, like, way. Grudgingly accepted okay. that this is happening. <laughs> and, uh, but like, you know, I, I took an NRA gun safety class and I was just, you know, pitching to them why hunting was, uh, like all the, you know, all the, all the stuff you hear over and over again sure. on social media about hunting's conservation and, you know, which it is, but I'm sure my parents were sick of hearing. Oh, it. sure. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, then I, I got my dog and I did everything, everything wrong. And she turned out wonderful despite, like I got that, uh, oh, what's that book that everybody gets that red, it's got a red cover. Oh, wait, it's right above me. Uh, it's called Gun Dog. Yeah, that book has yeah. some of the worst advice ever written in it. 
<laughs> like one, like his, uh, the way you, you, you teach a dog to be, uh, cool around guns is you take them to a shooting range and leave them in the car. No, it's that's in there. <laughs> it's in there. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly I've not read this yet. Yeah. And a lot, you know, it still comes up every now and then Richard Walters was his name. And I guess he was amazing at marketing and pretty good at dog training, but there's a lot of holes and a lot of <laughs> problems. Funny. But he's way better at marketing than dog training. Sure. That's why his books have stood the test of time, while there's a lot better books out there that have not. Um, but anyway, so somehow, despite doing everything wrong, that dog turned out wonderful. And uh, I went to, went to uh, ended up taking, I ended up, what was the deal? I, oh, I missed my my I missed the deadline for the last hunter's training course we had to take and I had to wait a whole year mm. and I ended up uh getting like so since I was such a stubborn kid I got like totally obsessed in that year because like I couldn't do it okay and uh then after that it was just like I did everything wrong you could possibly do <laughs> and you were young still you're probably what 14 15 now right yeah 14 15 Jeez. like I'd, I'd go most did a lot of duck hunting and uh hunting at the pheasant release sites okay. and uh just made every mistake you could possibly make i don't know how my dog didn't die <laughs> just because like i i'd never bring water with me you know oh, gosh it's a dog dogs don't need water sure, sure. you don't think you about know? that when you're 15 no <laughs> you know i didn't have any mentors or anything like that I just so you just you just went out and did it you're like i here's i've, I've seen what i want to do i'm gonna take my dog and go do it yeah, it, it really grabbed a hold of me because, like, I tried, you know, earlier, earlier when I was younger, I'd like, I'm going to try rock collecting. And I was like, this just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> it's not happening. And for some reason, hunting just, it spoke to me. And, you know, I was already a big time legend in my own mind, fisherman. <laughs> and so hunting, hunting's just kind of like the natural progression. Sure, sure. That, I think. Do you remember? So, so along your journey and I guess progression of, of upland hunting, like, do you remember like the tipping point for you? Like when did, when did you, I guess, first start to realize, like, I don't know, uh, like when did you first start to have some success? Uh, again, you got your young Springer, you're young, like figuring things out. Like, do you remember like kind of that moment where like you started to kind of figure things out a little bit? Uh, figure things out or is one thing having success like that. I just accidentally would, uh, like I remember, I ended up saving, I ended up saving some money to go to a preserve because hunting season wasn't open yet. Mm. And I ended up missing all the birds that I bought. Like I bought three birds, which was, that was like big money. Oh, sure. You know, like 75 bucks, I think. And I missed all the birds and I was coming back and I got a, fe a hen pheasant. Somebody didn't shoot the weekend before. And I was just like, I blew it to smithereens, but the dog, the dog getting excited over that, that was the thing that really like cemented it in my mind. Mm. And then uh, I remember going grouse hunting for the first time on the Olympic Peninsula with my, I had a buddy who was into hunting as well. And um, my parents dropped us off and I remember being at the, the truck and I dumped a box of shells in my pocket and I was like, well, you never know. And I dumped like four more boxes into my pocket <laughs> and uh, we walked around for hours and hours and hours on our first grouse hunting trip. And I actually shot a blue grouse. Oh, wow. And, uh. It was it was just one of those things that just like once you get that first one, it burns in your brain. Yeah. But it's always about the dogs for me. Sure, that's that's what kind of sounds like drew you in at first and and kept you in it. 
Yeah, one hundred percent. Like, I I wouldn't bird hunt whatsoever. I wouldn't do any hunting honestly if I didn't have dogs. Sure. Um, it just I would feel like some of these guys that hunt that are like uh, what's that guy's name Edgar Hunt Birds on Instagram. Oh, yeah. I just yeah. I just plugged him. I don't <laughs> know how he can do it. Just walk around and you know. Yeah, he he does it. He's he's walking around, no dog, and having a blast. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, definitely, obviously do it, but sure. I just, like, I draw all my confidence from the dogs. Totally, yeah. You know, so it's like they, and, and it, you know, it kind of takes you out of your head, and you're, you're just watching the dog do their thing, mm. watching the body language and stuff like that. Totally. But, uh... I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think you're alone in that, uh, in that feeling either. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's one of the things I love about this sport, is that you, you meet, you know, I don't know, a dozen bird hunters, and you pretty much met them all. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there. You can just bump into one, sure. have a great, share a great day in the field, and just you know be complete strangers. Oh yeah, and, and pick up like you were, you know, long lost friends. You know, chatting in the gas station parking lot. Well, for sure, that's awesome. Um, all right, and then and I guess kind of walk me through your progression of of dogs. I guess a little bit. So so you had your Springer. Like again, what was that tipping point to get your next dog? And what was that dog? And and what led you into that? So the next dog I got, um, I lit. I was living in the Skagit Valley, Washington at the time. And basically if you didn't duck hunt, you weren't doing anything. Mm. And, uh, so the next, I, my Springer was, you know, four or five years old or no, she wasn't even that old yet. I ended up getting the lab out of Craigslist because, you know, that's where you get your dog. Of course. And, uh, he got a chocolate lab and he ended up going blind at one year old. Oh, geez. And he had some of the worst hip dysplasia the vet had ever seen. Oh, gosh. So, um, yeah, living testament to make sure you find a good breeder. Amen. And, you know, it's worth whatever they're asking for. Sure. A good breeder can charge whatever they want. But anyhow, got the lab, and uh, that was a – tried duck hunting with a blind lab, and it <laughs> – he would dive after ducks. It was pretty amazing. Wow. Like he – you know, he'd sit – because it had the fundamentals down of sure. like, you know, blind – like no pun intended, blind retrieves. <laughs> oh, gosh. So he'd line them up and he'd go out there and he would like in, <clears throat> in still water, he'd sniff around till he'd smell the duck. And sometimes they were crippled and they'd dive and he'd dive after them wow. and he'd just use his nose. <laughs> and, uh, it was, you know, it obviously it wasn't like, Oh, we were doing this, you know, seven days sure, a week sure. all season long, but we had some success Yeah, and, uh, but his hips were so bad. He couldn't really hunt too much. And, it was just kind of one of those tragic things. Um, and I had the Springer for, you know, most of my, all actually all my teens and then into the early, early 20s. And I, I jumped ship and went to uh, German Shorthairs for a while. Okay. And I really liked those a lot. This was all before, you know, GPS and sure. uh, grouse hunting with them. Was, I don't even know how, how I did it. I mean, there's a lot of in uh, Washington, super thick rainforest, oh, yeah. you know, you just kind of, you kind of just, you spend a lot of time looking for your dog and a lot, a lot of time shooting grouse. Cause they'd all flutter up in trees by the time you get oh, there okay, and, okay. and what have you. And then we'd start, start heading East and doing chucker hunting and stuff. And that was a lot more manageable mm. because you could see a long ways, but, uh, have the short hairs, had a litter of those guys, um, from an accidental breeding and, uh, had a lot of success with them. Did some Nastra way back in the day. Okay. And, 
really enjoyed Nastra a lot. Just the competition side was great, but it seemed like the people that you would meet in Nastra were always just excellent, super helpful people. Oh yeah. And like the camaraderie was just, I remember it fondly. I'm, I'm looking to start back up yeah, again. Absolutely. And, uh, then ended up selling my, ended up getting a divorce and getting rid of my short hairs. And, uh, then went to Gordon Setter, and that dog was amazing. Mm. Um, just the, the personality-wise, bird-finding-wise, it was like uh, just just a wonderful dog. And it, I got him out of Craigslist, too. No way. You, did, you didn't yeah. learn your lesson from the lab? <laughs> no, no, no. This was, this was back before the internet was like just everybody had sure. it. Sure. You know? right. so like, All right. Well, here's, a, here's an obvious question. I got to pause you in the story then. So you went from, from a pretty common like GSP, everyone's got them, kind of classic bird dog, to a Gordon Setter. And again, I don't know what time frame this is. Like what led you from the GSP to a, to a Gordon Setter, which is, I, I mean, I would classify even now maybe a little rare, right? Yeah, definitely not as rare as they were, but and and good ones are rare. I I, I feel like I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, but <laughs> good hunting like Western field style Gordon setters are are not super common. Okay. Um, and it was just one of those things. Like I remember, gosh, like Shotgun Life. They had a on the cover. They had a Gordon setter. Okay, and they it was that whole issue was about the Gordon setter and the 28 gauge. And I was like, both those things sound amazing to me. <laughs> and, you know, later on the Gordon setter popped up in Craigslist and I was like, that net, you never see that breed. Wow. And I'm kind of, for a long time, I was kind of like, I, I would have loved to live. I'd love to live long enough to have every breed of dog. Sure. Just to experience them all. But, uh, Anyway, at the time, the Gordon Setter popped up, and I was like, well, give it a shot. It was like 400 bucks, I think. Okay, wow. And uh, talked to the gal, and she had a whole litter, you know, a whole, whole bunch of them racing around, and I picked the mellowest-looking one. And it turned out one of his his litter mates ended up being like a dual champion, or not a, uh, not a dual champion, but a Canadian and American field champion. Oh, wow. And just Craigslist pick. Wow. I mean, crazy. That's wild. But I uh, had him for a few years, and he was a great grouse dog. He was a great pheasant, like just, you know, he, he knew how to cut birds off and block them. Mm. And uh, then he ended up getting hit by a car while my folks were watching him. Oh, no. And we put him back together with a couple pins in his hips. And uh, he actually ended up living another three or four years. And you, you would have wow. never known... Would have never known that he uh, was injured. You know, he had just a slight limp, and he just he'd hunt all day long. Still, just the toughest dog ever. And, uh, and and did he still hunt after that accident? Oh yeah, yeah. Like I take him my first trip to Montana. I took him out there and you know ran him on sharp tails, and he could he was like a big pointer. Like heat didn't affect him. Like it, you know, generally mm. speaking, like I'm not hunting him in 90 degree weather, but like a uh, big black dog in the sun. He didn't get overheated real easy. Great bird finder. Um, and uh, I don't know, like he ended up, I don't know if you want to get in the weeds on this or not. It's a, it's kind of a long, weird story that I can't really verify, but <laughs> I think that he had a bad reaction to the red rock vaccine and that's what ended up taking oh, okay. his life. Oh, wow. Um, but 
anyhow, so had the Gordon and then uh, moved on to an English setter who I still have today. He's like 13 years old. Okay. And uh, got a so lab. So the Gordon, well. Gordon to the English, right? Yep. Okay. Gordon to the Gordon to the English, then uh, ended up getting another Gordon after that. That didn't quite work out because he was like 90 pounds Ooh, well, and just more than I wanted to deal with. Yeah, he's a big dog. Um, and ended up getting a lab too because I I really enjoy flushing dogs and, okay. and casual duck hunting. And uh, both the English the English setter and the lab are they're like 12 and 13 right now. Oh wow, okay. Um, and now I'm back to Gordon Setters again. I got a I got a Gordon pup okay. as well as as a English pointer. That's right. Yeah, you have a pointer now. That's right. Yeah. And so so are your two so the the English and the lab are, are older now. So what are the ages of the Gordon and the English or Gordon and the pointer? The pointer is about three years old. I I bought him as a I think he was almost two when I bought him last season. And the uh, Gordon Setter is a year and a half. Okay. And uh, so this is like his first real hunting season. Yeah. And uh, the the pointer was a he he uh, the guy who had him before me was a guide, so he's he's got plenty of birds under his belt oh, already. Awesome. Yeah. Did you get him from Ryan? No. Okay. I got him from a different guy in Missoula. Okay. Those are good, uh, good looking dogs for sure. What, um, so talk to me about, I guess the, the, again, your evolution as now training bird dogs, hunting with them, training, was it just doing a lot of your own self-research, like trial and error? Like, like how, where'd you get your experience from? Did you use a pro, a pro trainer? Like talk about that a little bit. Um, my experience came from like reading everything I could get my hands on and, I just absorb everything I could, and then I'd, I'd make a lot of mistakes and try to fix them. And then uh, when I started up with Nastra, that those guys helped me a lot. Like they set me set me straight and um, kind of helped drill into my brain that more less is a lot more for dog training. Mm. You know, um, it, you can let the wild birds do ninety nine percent of the work, and uh, just kind of. Add, add and subtract bits and pieces from uh, various programs, which I wouldn't recommend anybody do. <laughs> like, honestly, if you want to do it the right way, find a program and stick with it from the beginning to the end. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think yeah. I think it's a common thing. Yeah, because I, I, I I've done it. Like I took a little bit of this, took a little bit of that. You know, with Gage, my older dog, and, and he was getting confused. He's like, well, wait. We're, you know, we're doing this method. Now we're doing this method. And so I, I think you do got to do your research. Like you're saying, like you got to find what works for you, what makes sense, but then yeah, stick with it. Don't, you know, throw in all these <laughs> methods in the uh, crock pot and stir it up. Yeah. Like if, if you know why you're switching from this guy's program, like from this element to that sure. element, if you know why you're doing it, that's great. You know, more power to you. But if you're like, I'm just skipping right to bird work because uh, that's fun. And uh, then I'm going to try this or that. Yeah. You know, a lot of people that um, have information out there that it's like, you know, you, you just can't mix and match because part A is going to come back into play with part, you know, D mm. or, you know, vice versa. And it just builds off it. But uh, 
my approach now is just basically, I like starting with a young puppy and just kind of brainwashing them so that mm. everything they do, they think is their idea. Uh. And, uh, you know, I just, I, as far as bird work goes, I like to s- steer clear of pigeons as much as possible. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to have wild birds at my disposal, sure, sure. but, uh, you know, I, I've, I've done the bird launchers. I've done it, done it. The, the, it, if you got to use pigeons, I, I feel, I feel for you because a lot of people, that's all they have sure. and you can definitely do it, but a lot of people miss out on getting their dogs to work wild birds and just like, people are like, Oh, my dog's nine months old and he's broke. It's like, that's great. But he never learned mm. how much he can push the bird. You know, he never learned like a, a, a young sure. dog that's ripping birds, ripping wild birds over and over and over again, as long as some kind of progress is being made, that's a good thing. You know, as sure. long as they're not just chasing them over the horizon every time, you know, if they're, if they're learning like, right. Oh, well I can put, I can push it this far next time. I won't push it quite so far. And then you wind up with right. a, you know, a pretty solid dog on wild birds. Totally. But with pigeons, you just never, you never get that. And I've, you know, the answer is for with pigeons is launchers, but then you get a dog that's sound sensitive sometimes and you can't do that. Hmm. Yeah. You give like a my, super, my super Gordon careful. pup. Yeah. My Gordon pup, uh, last year, like pigeon launchers scare the heck out of them. Oh, geez. That's that snap noise they make. Um, even the, the, um, DT systems, which are a lot quieter than sure. most. They, they still make, they still make a little rattle, a little pop and, no, you're right. I mean, it can, yeah, you have to be super, super careful with those. My uh, mentor of mine, he takes, so he has, he has a bunch of launchers, but he takes like two launchers and designates them for puppies. And he actually takes one of the springs off, I think. So it's, so when That's it does, smart. so when it does pop, I mean, it's still, still making a sound, but it's noticeably quieter and, and easier than the, the ones with the, the two springs. But um, I thought that was, that was kind of clever, but. Cause you're right. It, it, they do make a, make a noise for sure. And some dogs just don't care. They're like, yeah. whatever, you know, there's a bird there. Totally. But yeah, like my Gordon pup, which Gordons are kind of notorious for being sensitive dogs. Um, he'd like just recoil and jump like three feet back oh, wow. when the pigeon launcher would go off. And, uh, that led to a whole bunch of other issues. And I tried, you know, I, I bolt boards to it and stuff to kind of dampen the vibration, but it just sure. never got, and then I was just like, okay, well, I can't, I can't do pigeons at all with them. So it's just wild birds only, which mm. was a massive benefit for him. Okay. Um, I just kind of, you know, we do yard work and stuff and just all the mechanics without birds and then just move on to wild birds. And, uh, he's been doing great. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Like he, he actually had a gun sensitivity, uh, sensitivity, um, I think it was just loud noises in general sure. when he was a pup. Sure. And I thought like, oh boy, he is, he's not even going to be a bird dog. And after doing a bunch of like positive pigeon drills and stuff like that, if he hears gunshots, he gets stoked now. Oh, so, cool. That's awesome to see that, yeah. that turnaround. What, what is it? I guess talk a little bit more about the Gordon. Um, now you, you have, you you have that older setter, like any big differences that you notice? Like why, why'd you go back to the Gordon a second time over the, over the English? So speaking in huge generalities, (laughs) um, 
so I don't get beat up. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. On I love here. my English setter. What's that? I said you can say whatever you want on here. Well, it's, a, it's a safe place. <laughs> it's a safe. It's I love a safe my English setter. Yeah. Every Gordon setter I've had, um, like I, I had that one big one briefly. The I I feel like the average Gordon setter is tougher, smarter, probably more sensitive, sillier than and and sillier than an English setter. Wow. Okay. And I also want to say they well, I want to say that from my limited experience, the average Gordon I've had has had a way better nose. Really? Than okay. My English dogs like they. They uh, find those needle in a haystack birds. Oh, that's cool. That, you know, like they, I've heard people say like, you know, that, that dog that just creates birds sure. out of nowhere. It's like every Gordon I've had has been like that. Like they just, the nose on them has been unreal. But mainly what I love them for is just their personality. I mean, mm. they're silly, silly <laughs> sweet dogs sure. and they're super smart. I mean, to their detriment, like it's, it's like, you know, they, they can, uh, pick up on the wrong thing, focus on the wrong thing. Oh, okay. And then like, like my, my current Gordon right now, he, uh, one time he, he pulled my shoelaces undone and I thought it was funny and I laughed and he keyed in on that. And he's like, well, that's, that's, you know, that made him happy. <laughs> oh gosh. So every day he runs up to my shoes and pulls my laces. Oh gosh. <laughs> and he even did that to a judge at a, at a hunt. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, "What's your dog doing?" Yeah. He's like, "Oh, you'll see." <laughs> Zip, and he runs oh, off. Gosh. Um, That's funny. And then, like my my first Gordon, I had I was on the I was trying to teach him how to sit, and he, you know, they 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 have a some of them can be real stubborn and sensitive, which is a very tricky combination. But I'm on the bed, and I'm teach trying to teach you know put him put his butt down to make him sit and lay down, and I think I. I got frustrated and I shoved him over and I said, lay down. And, uh, the next day I come back and I go lay down and he threw himself on the ground. Oh, gosh. And I was like, Oh my God. And I did it again. He just flop on the ground. So I turned, I kind of turned it into, I'd say bang and do the, like a gun yeah, yeah. motion. <laughs> and he just falls over. over. Like he just got shot. Oh, gosh. But, uh, they're kind of like, uh, they're they're like those those Asperger kids that are just like they, they they tune in on stuff and they lock on it. Like yeah. my current Gordon pup, I never I've never tried to teach him heal ever. And we were working on whoa, and for some reason he thought that's what I wanted from him, so he'd start healing, <laughs> like perfect. And I obviously it's something I did. I'm not saying the dog figured it out. It's something sure, sure. I did that. He, he, he picked up on sure. 100%, but it's like, that's like burned in his mind. So now instead of saying, whoa, I'll, I'll go whoop. Oh, wow. And that seems to be enough of a difference for him. Oh, wow. Not, so, so, not want to heal. so whoop is to get him to actually whoa and whoa is to get him to heal? I'm not going to try to get him to heal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure what the heck happened there. And like I said, it's my fault. It's all, you know, it's always the, the trainer's sure, fault. Sure. But I'm not sure what happened. He's not telling me. So <laughs> that's funny. Um, and, and you mentioned before too. Again, people I'm sure have lots of opinions on this, but like it, it's hard to find a, a well-bred Gordon. Is that yeah. is that still true? What you're finding today? Um, 
it's it's not hard to find a well-bred one. It's hard to find like Gordons are all over the place, right? Like the the breed is all over the place. They have one of the widest standards um, for a dog breed. Like like the standard is like the window of size okay. that is acceptable. And I can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head, but the, it's one of the widest standards. And back in the day, there's actually two separate standards for Gordons. There's a small and a large, oh, kind of wow. like for beagles. <laughs> And so I think that kind of contributes to Gordon's being all, all over the place. And you can wind up with, um, you know, dual, dual bred ones that are kind of the, you know, well, air quotes hunt to, you, you know, dogs that are advertised as like hunting dogs that, that don't even know what a bird smells like. Uh, so if you're going to go for a Gordon, I think research is more as, important as it ever was mm. to find what breed not what breeder you're after and what strain you're after um i'm probably butchering this but like uh my current dog is from tall grass gordons and they're kind of like the anti-gordon almost like they're not these big clap big bone huge sure. dogs like they're about the size of a you know your average english setter okay they they range out you know and in, in uh like on the prairie and stuff, my guy, he's going to go further, but right now he's kind of averaging 300 yards out and okay. he'll do some big pushes. Like he did a big one, almost 600 yards when we were checking okay, around. So they got some, they got some weeks. range in them. Yeah. That, 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 uh, that line does. Okay. I mean, and then you have like Stephen Foss dogs that are more of like a grouse baseline and they're, you know, I, I I want Steve, I'm sorry if I get this wrong, Stephen, but I want to say he's like you know 50 yards in the grouse woods. Okay. And, and are those the Stony Brook ones you see online? Yeah, okay. and they're a bigger dog than the tall grass dogs. Okay. Like the tall grass dogs are are fast, just built different, just built different. You know they they still have the same Gordon Setter personality. They're just built better for Western covers. Gotcha. But my guy, like I take him grouse out in the rough grouse woods. He's just a joy to hunt with like he'll you know a hundred yards is a long ways for him in, in the grouse woods okay. like he keeps it around 70 and checks back all the time and he's, he's literally everything i've ever wanted mm. in a in a bird dog that's um, awesome but yeah the the gordon setters like if that's the breed for you uh, you just got to really hyper focus on on what breeder you're going with you know research 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 you know, there's like some breeds where you could get, you know, you get an English, a good field bred English setter. And generally speaking, you'll get a decent dog, sure. a decent hunting dog. Or like a, a good pointer, you'll get a decent hunting dog, both Gordons. It's, I just feel like it's all over the place. Like another good one is uh, Clear Cut Kennels in Minnesota, I think, or Wisconsin. I can't remember. But they have like a... They have like a smaller, you know, 55 pound and under-ish Gordon that big time grouse hunting dogs. And then they come west and they win all kinds of field trials. Wow. Just big open cover. Like one of the, arguably one of the best Gordon setters, um, one of the best field Gordons that ever lived, Chucker Hill, Buck Naked. I want to say came from clear cut kennels and was trained by Trina Cardwell. Okay. Um, but he he's like, that dog you know, he's got puppies all over the world. Oh, I'm sure. That's pretty special and, to see a dog that's able to 
trans make that transition really well from you know tight cover grouse woods to the big country and you know be able to bounce back and forth like that for sure yeah i think you know it's, it takes brains yeah i mean or or if not brains then just a real uh team player sure you know to be able to adapt and yeah like uh I get comments on Facebook sometimes like, oh, I can't believe your dog ranges that far. I'd never get there in time. And it's like, I'm not fast. <laughs> I am a slow walker. You know, I, I see turtles <laughs> passing me, you know, if the, the dog knows what he's doing, he'll hunt with you and hold birds. Sure. And if it takes all, you know, pheasants don't count, obviously. Sure. Because pheasants will be in the next country. Little jerks. Jerks nasty birds um <laughs> but yeah uh they're just great dogs like That's awesome. there's always exceptions there's i'm speaking in general oh, of course of course everybody yelling at I know, yeah calm down everybody listening out there calm, calm down, down. Well, this is just my hot take on on gordon setters um, yeah no they sound like great dogs man i mean they're some again some of the f- photos you've posted they look beautiful um sound like really smart dogs and that's that's it's always fun to see well, and, they, and also they have a, like an off on and off switch, sure. like as, as much as any breed I've ever had where, you know, you got to live with them for the rest of the year. Right. And these guys just, you know, really well-mannered dogs all around. I, I'm looking forward to get more, getting more of them. And, you know, maybe if things work out, having my own line. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, you, uh, do, do you ever do, do much, uh, chucker hunting or, or have you this year or is that something you, you prioritize on your schedule (laughs) i don't want to say i'm a checker hunter i'm somebody who goes checker hunting (laughs) okay um i i used to do it a lot when i was in washington and i i went down to idaho and did some scouting and found one small cubby um i think it was last week god it seems so long ago but uh that's something i'm going to be doing more of just because it's so close to me like checker i think now that you know the mountains are closed down with snow are going to be my closest game bird. Okay. And, uh, but yeah, when I was in Washington, I used to do it a lot. It was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Um, just, I mean, you, it's almost like the birds are not why you're out there. You're like there for the endorphins. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I tease other chucker hunters that like if, if there's trees up at the top of chucker hills, nobody'd go. <laughs> Cause it's, it's nice to watch your dog. Yeah. Work, no, be able to see him in that, that open space. And I'd, Definitely, definitely on my list to uh, to get to chase some chase some, chase some chucker someday. Yes, and you know you don't have to kill yourself to do it. Yeah, contrary to popular belief, like <laughs> you can, you know, you don't have to like go to the most extreme, whatever. Just you know, you can find places that are easy to hunt if sure. you take your if time. You, if you're not, yeah, we're not all Matt Davis. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Everyone, no, no, we're not all endurance athletes like him. No, I'm not even. I'm not even fit enough to carry Matt's bird. I mean, <laughs> but you know, oh, you, you can find checkers in places yeah. that are not brutal. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Um, one thing I was going to talk with you about, I know you and I have chatted online a little bit about this and again, it's one of those, those topics that's always out there. People talk about is, is politics. Uh, no, that's a different podcast. <laughs> it's a separate, separate episode, but something just as hot as that is uh, hot spotting. 
And oh, yeah. uh, I forget who I was talking with. I, I t- touched on this a little bit. It might have been Steve Snell when I was talking with him. Maybe we touched on it very briefly. But like in your in your mind, I guess like what what is and what isn't hot spotting? And and yeah, I mean I I have no agenda here. Just to kind of chat about it a little bit casually. Okay, so um, in my mind, what isn't hot spotting is if I say I go some if I go to this state. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of, you know, it gets a little tricky. Like if you know where I live specifically and I say, I go to this state then there's maybe you could do the math, but I think that's kind of the edge of paranoia right there. Yeah. But I think that is definitely not hot spotting. I think you gotta be, uh, so it's so, it's so tough with Onyx because I love Onyx, but I also feel like it makes things so much easier for people to, to hot to i don't know what you call it reverse hot spot like oh somebody dropped a clue and you can get on onyx and kind of and someone can do their own kind of like again putting the puzzle pieces together to figure it out exactly and uh you know i love onyx i use it but i also think there's some detriment to it sure but uh if you know if you post i think if you post uh, a picture that's highly recognizable like I don't think a mountain range counts unless it's like, you know, Mount Rushmore. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) you know, these mountains from a photo, like, I mean, that's gotta, you gotta be a talented person to (laughs) figure out a mountain range. Oh, I mean, I can't even, you know, it's, I I don't, if if people can do that, then you're not going to stop them. Right. There's nothing you can do. Like I've been bitched out or I've been griped out before on, uh, I posted some hills in the background. Somebody recognized, and it's like, first off, how can you do that? Like, how can you recognize that particular hill? Oh my gosh! And then, second of all, like, how do you think? I mean, he's like really concerned that I just blew up his spot. It's like nobody's gonna know. Yeah. How could they know? But anyway, posting some kind of recognizable picture, sure. obviously saying, I. Uh, I hunted this uh, particular drainage. I think that's definitely hot spotting. Sure. You know, any anytime you make it way too easy. Like just too specific, right? Like like something that someone could Google or find very easily on Onyx. Like, a, you know, like a, kind of what you're saying, like a sign, a, a drainage, things like that, a river. Yeah, exactly. And if you leave it on a forum, you know, like the forums are there pretty much forever. So anybody that Googles that river, that drainage, that county, you know, that potentially could come up in their search mm-hmm. if they're, if like you're, you mentioned it on a uh, upland bird hunting forum or something. I don't know if those even exist anymore. S- similar but, uh, to like Facebook too, right? Like, yeah. 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 Any, anytime you make it easier for some, for somebody and make it repeatable, I think that's the biggest danger. Mm-hmm. It's like this one thing, like, overhearing at a bar like oh chow you know this this town has a real good hatch this year you know sure versus typing it and putting it online for the whole world to see over and over and over and over and over again ad infinitum you know that's that's definitely hot spotting oh absolutely so why do you think people get so pissed off about uh, like state specific, like someone says a state Missouri is amazing Missouri has all these awesome birds it's, it's great that pisses some people off pretty heavily sometimes, even though you're, you're mentioning a state, like, is it just, they don't want you to come to their state or. I think that might be it. Or it might also depend on the state. Like if you say, uh, Mern's quail hunting in Arizona, well, that's, 
generally everybody goes to like one concentrated area for as far as I understand. Like there's one big Mearns metropolis in Arizona. So if you keep saying Mearns in Arizona, sure. people can do the math real easy, but uh, maybe I'm just stupid or maybe I'm naive or both, but I just don't see the harm in saying this, what state you hunted. Sure. And if somebody wants to, you know, let me know. Yeah. Please let me know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If, if someone out there has a, a good a good argument or good, I guess, reasoning, like, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to hear that. But yeah, I, I agree on the state thing. It's it's just, again, maybe if, like Montana, I know Montana gets talked about a lot and, and maybe that that's part of it, of, of kind of like you said, the repetitiveness of Montana, 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 you got to go. And so maybe that's some of it of people are like, all right, like, again, you're going to funnel all these people to this, this one state. And, um, so maybe, maybe that's part of it. I'm not sure. Yeah. And you know, some of it's, I think, I think some of it's paranoia that is, you know, substantiated, you know, whether you're paranoid or not, you know, sure. sometimes you have a good reason to be like Montana this season. I've seen more people hunting sharp tail than I have in the last like 15 years of hunting it. Hmm. Like it's been unreal. Um, and I'm sure that's just mainly from traffic of, you know, all the, all the podcasts and magazines. And I mean, it's, it's no secret sure. that Montana's got good hunting. Right. I mean, it just isn't. I mean, the locals think it is. Yeah. <laughs> the, the locals, you know, like uh, there's that huge fly fisherman. And he's like, if you're from Montana, your biggest complaint is the out-of-staters, even though you, you're not even from Montana. Mm. But uh, I think as far as, as far as mentioning states go... You know, there's, there's only so much you can do and still be within the lines of sanity, sure. you know, just get off social media, I guess, and never yeah. talk to anybody right. and, it's like, and you'll be safe. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah, I mean, you have a good hunt. You want to post a picture, you, your dog, your buddy, whatever it is. Like, all right, what, what mountain range is behind us? Like, are we, you know, what tree is behind us? Like, I think there has to be a level of like, I mean, be smart about it. Like, and then don't post the the walking access sign it has a number on it or something like that. Like just, I guess be smart about it would be my advice to anyone out there, I guess. But well, yeah, I mean, I like this season I posted a picture and it had a BMA number on it and somebody was like, Hey, heads up. Mm. And it was like, you'd have to zoom in on it to see that BMA number. Oh, well. And I was like, that's, that's my bad. And I took it down to immediately because sure. anybody, you know, any of my followers or anybody on Instagram that wants to use the hat, same hashtags I did could see, oh, he's at a BMA and just zoom in sure. and be like, yep. Um, so, I mean, it's just common sense. Yeah. And because also, if you think about it, there, if you're advertising all these spots that you found online, I mean, you're you're investing your time, your gas money, your vehicle, your dog, like all this stuff that is just so important to us. And then to just put a spotlight on it. Yeah. I mean, you sometimes you might as well just kiss it goodbye. I mean, they, spots can get ruined. Sure. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, they could. Yeah, people. Uh, yeah. Especially, especially in in states where there's systems with like BMAs. Sure. Or uh, WMAs and stuff like that. You say, "I was at this WMA." It's like, well. Yeah. You just you know grease the path. Right. But yeah, I, I I think some of it gets gets pretty uh, pretty paranoid, yeah. and some of it gets pretty flagrant too. So. Oh, for sure. That's a that's a good. Just use some common sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good way to put it, almost paranoia because there, there's this 
again, some irrational things I've seen online, irrational statements and <laughs> anger from people. I'm like, why, why are you this way? <laughs> like what's, what's going on inside of you that you're, you're this pissed off? You don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. It's, you don't need to go on there. Yeah. They're, they're, if it's not that, they're going to be pissed off about something else yep. for sure. Exactly. Well, very cool. And then also on the flip side, yeah. it's like, well, how come you only have so many spots, you know, mm. that, that you're so worried about? I guess I shouldn't say that because like if, when you lose a hunting spot, it sucks. Oh, sure. It doesn't matter how many you have. Yeah. yeah it, 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 again, like you said, you put in the time to find that or locate. You know, I guess we have to keep in mind too, though, that like, I don't know. I'm the only person that found that. I might, I might like to think that I might like to think I found this sharp tail spot and I'm the only one who knows about it, but chances are like other people know about it. And again, I think that's like that paranoia level, like for sure, you know, we're hunting public land, like, but then, you know, it's like, so would I'd rather know why they're there rather than knowing that they're there. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. 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 Like it's for a long time. It was like, I have these like X number of spots that I can find grouse in. I have no idea why they're there. Sure. And then you learn why they're there. Yep. And it's like the whole world opens up to you. Yeah. Because then you can find another spot. Yeah. Then you can go replicate it and and find brand new spots. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can go anywhere that has, you know, theoretically that has whatever species of bird you're after and you can find them. Sure. And, I mean, I don't, I don't like hunting the same spot more than, you know, once or twice a season anyway. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's the, that's the takeaway is like, figure out why the birds are there. Don't figure out, you know, this, don't try to snipe people's spots. Right. No, that's a, that's an important thing. I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's just a good reminder for everyone, no matter how long, you know, you've been at this hunting, whatever it is, like, it's a good reminder, I think for, for people out there for sure. Yeah, I mean, if you kill, like, no matter where you're at, whatever you're doing, if it's sage grouse, rough grouse, yeah. pheasants, if you kill a bird in a spot, always always ask yourself why it was in that spot. Yeah, and, like, look, uh, like take your time, look around. What what time of day was it? What was the weather like? Where, where'd the birds come from? Where'd they fly to? Like, look at its crop when you get home yeah. or at the truck, you know, and you won't, you won't, it won't be obvious you know, sure. 90% of the time, but then you can kind of apply that to your next situation and be like, Oh, this is the same as last time, but in a different spot. Yeah. I'm, I'm noticing a trend. Yep. And you start putting those, those little pieces together. And by the time you know it, you're starting to, uh, starting to learn something. <laughs> Which, you know, beats the heck out of like just being dependent on, Oh, where'd you find grouse this weekend? Oh, I'm going to go to that spot and trample the same grass you yeah. walked on. Exactly. Well, it's like, yeah, what's that saying? Like, teach a man to fish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I forget how it goes. Teach a man to fish. He'll f- eat forever or something, something like that. I'm butchering it, but. Oh, I, can't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. Teach now. a man to fish. Give a man a fish, he'll eat oh, yeah. for a day. Teach a man to fish, he'll eat for the rest yes, of his life. Yes, there you go. Oh, good job. Good job. Yeah, good me. Oh. <laughs> um, how are those uh, those pet turkeys you have? They're, they're good and friendly. They're, especially now that the snows come down, they make no bones about it, that they're, they're here for food. Um, <laughs> do you, do you invite them inside yet? No, I had one that was, that would come into my shop. <laughs> um, there was a couple times where he'd, he'd come in, like I'd keep the, 
the chicken feed in the entrance to my shop and he knew that's where it was. <laughs> oh, gosh. He'd come in and help himself. And a couple of times the door would blow shut on him. And so then I'd come into my shop and, and look and there's like turkey crap oh, everywhere. Gosh. Stuff's knocked down. And then like in the corner, he would be like roosting on a ladder. Oh gosh. <laughs> he was a total, like he was a pet, kind of like yeah. a pet, but a nuisance at the same oh, time. Oh, totally. You're like, get the hell out of here. But uh, something picked him off. So. Oh, no. Well, hope you didn't name him. His name was Dan. Oh, Dan. Rip Dan. <laughs> yeah. Hang on a second, please. Go, yeah, go for it. Has anybody got a phone charger? Anybody? <laughs> My phone's like got 10% left Uh-oh. here. I don't know where everybody went. <laughs> they all left you? They all bounced. Hopefully they didn't get bored of our conversation. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you got a phone charger? I got a cord. I had a full charge before I started. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think this app drains that battery pretty quick. Cool. Thank you. Sorry about no, that. No, no, you're good. The, the magic of editing, I can cut this out. Um, no, but uh, yeah, rest in peace to uh, Dan the turkey. And every time you post a, uh, a turkey video coming up to your your porch, I, I crack up and <laughs> it's highly entertaining. So keep those keep those turkey videos coming. Yeah, they're funny creatures. <laughs> like I, I'm, I don't know if it's. Uh, I was told that in Montana, the winters are so harsh, they can't survive unless they they kind of stake out a farm where they can oh, okay. poach, poach feed. Oh, wow. Which, that's certainly the case at my place. I mean, they're getting into everything all the time. Yeah, I'll fatten them up and draw a turkey tag. Oh, man, if I know, if I know them, I can't kill them. <laughs> you grow too attached to the uh, wild turkeys? Well, and then they trust you too, so it's not really like hunting. <laughs> that's that's it's true. More like, that's true. Like luring, it's more like harvesting, yeah, like luring them in. <laughs> but like I, I actually tagged a deer. I think it was on Saturday. Anyway, last week shot a deer, and uh, the snow pushed some big bucks down. And I looked as I, I was outside, and I looked, and I was like, I don't know that one. And so I put a tag on it. <laughs> I don't know that one. Oh my gosh. Oh dude, it's I I know all the deer by their face. Oh my really gosh. Bad. You're one of those people who can who can spot a, a two different deer. Yeah, there's some does that like one of the neighbors shot a doe in the ear because she kept stomping his dogs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> He's got this little yapper dog oh that's gosh. walking around with a cast last summer. It, it gets really it gets gnarly because all these does come by and they drop their fawns. Oh, gosh. And then they just want to take on anybody that comes near oh, them. Oh, jeez. But anyway, she, she got shot in the ear. Mm. So, um, and she's kind of a, you know what, we call her Karen. <laughs> and then. Uh, it's like the Wild West where you live, man. This is highly entertaining. Oh, it's Montana, dude. Jeez. We got the, there's a, there's another one that somehow, not for like from a neighbor, I think it will make eye contact with you. Cause it knows you'll give it food. So it like comes and just stares right into your eyes. And, uh, it's like a human looking, looking into yeah. my soul. 
pretty much. You can feel guilty for Jeez. them, but I, I try not to feed the deer because they they just become a nuisance. Oh, I'm but, sure. You know, they know the chicken food's around, right. so sooner or later they'll get out. Then they'll, then they'll call but, their buddies and. But yeah, I mean, I'm the only person in the neighborhood who's not throwing lead at the deer, so they kind of hang out <laughs> in my yard. Because you know, you're kind of like the safe the safe place for them. Yeah, it's the the halfway house for deer. <laughs> oh, gosh, and turkeys. Unless, unless I unless I've never met you before, in then, which case, yeah. then yeah, you're going in my freezer. Yep. Um, Mike, talk a little bit about your uh, your company, Upland Knife Company. That you uh, you got going on here. You're making some uh, some really really nice, high quality uh, custom knives. Why don't you talk about that journey a little bit? What uh, what led you down that path? Well, like any any red blooded American kid, I was a pyromaniac <laughs> growing up. And uh, that led into heating up metal and then banging on metal. And over the, I don't know, probably before I even started hunting, I was messing around making knives and doing bushcraft and stuff. And then I'd, I'd make my own forge and half-ass this, do something wrong this way, like over and over and over again. Then finally the internet came along. I started learning how to make knives uh, the right way. Mm. And it got to the point where I was like, what am I going to do with all these knives? Like, <laughs> you just can't keep making them. You can them. only have so many. You can really only have so many. I mean, if that's like, you know, a couple hundred, fine. But, <laughs> gosh, you know, at a certain point, it's like, you know, there's some kind of natural progression. So I decided, you know, I think I could do this and uh, started selling them here and there and, and then just kind of decided to to go all in with once i got on instagram and seeing all the other people making knives and all the inspiration out there um but like i said i've been doing i've been fiddling around making with metal and fire since i was a little kid That's probably cool. way too young <laughs> but uh anyway upland knives it's kind of you know what it sounds like just burden trout knives i don't do a lot of i do some big game knives but not real often okay and I, I just kind of like smaller knives that don't, you know, I, I don't like belt knives. I, I like to, I like something I can put in my vest pocket mm, sure. and, you know, they'll just kind of, they're fixed blade knives, but I don't want, you know, the sheath to take up more room than the knife itself. Sure. And just, you know, real handy little, little everyday carry knives that you can clean birds with or open boxes with, do whatever you want. Yeah. And, uh, no, they are. I try to make them affordable. Yeah, no, they are. They are beautiful. Um, I mean, some of, some of the work you're putting into these handles and the the blades. I mean, they are they they are they look very nice. I will say that. Well, I appreciate that. What? Um, oh crap! I had a thought. I was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah. I guess just talk about the. Again, you're talking to you're talking to Will here. I'm a dummy about how to make knives. Like, give me, give me a, a dummy proof version. Like, uh, I guess a brief overview, like what goes into making at one of those knives? All right. So the, the super simplified version is there's two ways you can go about making a knife. One, one is called stock removal where you take uh, billets of steel and you grind them into shape and cut them into shape and then you heat treat them. And then there's uh, forging where you take a piece of metal and you heat it up and pound it into shape. I do both. Okay. And uh, forging is kind of kind of like the art, art arty side of things because you, you know, technically you don't really need to forge uh, 
most things anymore because it's like back in the day you'd have like a a hunk of metal the size the shape of like a rock right okay. and you're going to smash it and heat it up and pound it into the shape of a knife well now you have built metal readily available so it's kind of antiquated in some ways so like the real arty stuff is usually forged okay and, and, and that's like where you dip that's where like you dip it in like or no you heat it up really really hot right and then you're pounding it to the shape you want yeah, you heat it up to uh, till it's basically red hot, okay. and then it becomes malleable, and you you pound it. <clears throat> you basically use a kind of think of like it, it turns into play doh, and you use okay. your 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 hammers, your thumb, and you're just kind of squishing it. You're li- literally squishing it. Yeah, into, into the shape, into the shape you want, you, okay. and then then generally after that you'll grind it into the finished shape, mm. and and that's you know super overly simplified foraging. Sure, sure. Um, and then you quench, you know, it's, it gets to a red hot stage. Um, usually you want to get it around 15, like I use 80 CRV steel, which is a carbon steel and you want to get it like 1550 degrees Fahrenheit and you dip it into, uh, a type of oil, which quenches it and that makes it super hard. Wow. And then you you cook it at like 400 degrees, which takes some of that hardness out, but makes it like when, after you dip it in oil, it's so brittle. You can just tap it on our, on the anvil and it'll snap. Oh, like, wow. like almost like glass, a little, little tougher than glass. Okay. And then, so if you, you cook it at 400 degrees, you know, give or take for a couple hours and that draws some of the, draws some of the hardness out of it. Um, but like I said, generally, if I'm doing like a big art piece, I'll, I'll do, I'll do foraging just because I'm trying to get the most out of it. Okay. And, um, with Damascus, you gotta, you gotta forge it where you're just layering p- different types of metal together and then gotcha. forge welding, them, which is, so, your, are you, are, so are you, you just, again, I guess buying like pieces of steel then that you're forging, like, like chunks of it. And then, yeah. Okay. And then you kind of get into the, the size that you want and then forge it. Yeah. It, it, it'll come in like uh, stock and you buy it dimensionally. And uh, for forging, you just basically, instead of cutting it to shape, like if I was doing the other method, which is stock removal, you'd get like a one eighth inch thick by two inch by 36 inch strip of metal. And uh, you would cut that out and then grind in and drill holes and what, what have you. Okay. All right. So then I got to ask about the handle then. So like how, how does the handle come to play? And, and cause I'm like looking at some of your pictures right now and like, aren't some of your handles like wood or different materials and, and they have some really cool designs on them. So like, how are you incorporating the handle in this, into the blade the blade then? So the, the handle, I usually like, so most of my, most of the handle material I use is my Carta which is layers of fabric, usually canvas uh, or G10 fiberglass. It's layers and it's colored and it's impregnated with resin. Mm. And that is, uh, there's pin holes going through that and it has pins that hold it and it's epoxied in place. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, sometimes there's there's bolts called the Corby fasteners that have like a mechanical bond. So if that glue fails, it's not going to fall off. Okay. It's just kind of extra insurance, but uh, I really like the micarta handles and like the handle design itself comes from. I have big hands. I like wear a two XL glove. Oh, I'm the same. <laughs> same. 
yeah so like i'm i'm constantly like contorting my hands to try and you know different positions and stuff like that and i don't really like your your straight handled knives it's just mm. like a you know so i try to get get stuff that i can kind of use more as like an instrument rather than a tool yeah yeah i'm, like, I'm noticing a lot of these these knives i'm looking at on your instagram are have a little bit a little bit of a curve to them nothing like super aggressive but yeah like I, I really want you to be able to get like your your index finger behind the tip and then your three other fingers underneath and just kind of use oh, it nice, as like nice. a scalpel for really fine work like <clears throat> excuse me um yeah anyway i like uh, to be able to have like control like a scalpel over my knives and cut out breast meat or you know I guess that's kind of passe these days to cut out just the breast meat and the legs and what have you and not pluck the bird, but sure. you know, that's the way I do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, man. What, um, did you, like, I guess, how long have you been at this? Did you have this back in when you were in Washington or did you just start this when you, uh, when you guys moved to Montana? Um, I started selling them like professionally air quotes back in Washington. I want to say 2018 was when I was finally like, yeah, I can do this and charge money for it. Okay. Um, and I've been going strong ever since. I, I've been really fortunate to have some awesome customers and amazing support. That's awesome. And now, do you do you kind of like make them in batches or, or what's the best way for someone to to want to get one of these? Because... Um... <laughs> So I like try- I, I th- they're really popular because every time I go on your your site, sometimes I'll look. Like, oh, I'm gonna I'm grab one, and uh, you've been sold out a couple of times. I doesn't know. Do you make them in batches or do you just kind of make them as you go? So I kind of a little bit of both. My my philosophy is basically most knife makers will take a a backlog for like sometimes a year, two, three years if they're really popular, and take deposits. I hate sitting on people's money. Mm. I mean, it just bugs me. Sure. And it's frustrating, you know, you don't want to cough up a deposit and then have to wait two or three years to actually get the knife you're after. So I kind of try to keep things random and kind of almost like, kind of like hunting. You pop on Instagram (laughs) and you see a knife and it's like, oh crap, I I got a shot. Sure. And, uh, you know, so far so good. I kind of feel like that keeps the playing field pretty even yeah um, you, you do like a surprise drop like hey they're here <laughs> jump yeah. on grab them snooze you lose um, oh, that's cool but i i am going to be taking limited deposits like right now I, I have five customs that i'm working on and once i get done with those i'm going to open back up and try to take maybe five more before christmas and people can get uh you know they can order one of my favorites that I've been putting out or something they, they have in mind and uh, we can talk about, you know, options and whatnot. But, so you'll do custom work as well. Someone yeah. comes to you and says, Hey, I'm kind of thinking about this size, color, whatever. Like you'll, you'll work with that. Exactly. Yeah. And if somebody's like, Hey, I really want you to make this other guy's knife. I'll say, you know, I, I'll put my own spin on it. I'm not going to copy somebody's knife. Sure. But hit me up on Instagram or through my website, and you know uh, that's the best way to get a hold of me. I will, like I said, for the, the for the uh, custom options, I'm gonna have I have a feature on my website where you can buy the deposit 
And so that oh, okay. automatically locks you into the next month, month or two time frame. So nice. Okay. Um, rather than like, Hey, do you have any openings? You can just look and, and see instantly, Oh, he's got a deposit ready. So you can jump on that and then contact me and we can talk about making whatever you had in mind. That's great. How, how long does it take to make a knife for you? Like just take a, take an average knife, nothing crazy. Like what's, what's the average time frame from like the, again, very beginning process to shipping it out. If it's not hunting season, it takes a lot less time, uh, <laughs> but hunting that's, that's season kind of cuts into it. I would say during the off season, it's, it, there's various processes I got to go through. So probably, I think the fastest I would get one out would be two weeks. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So nothing, um, nothing too crazy. I try to, like, I, like I, I try to do batches. So number one, if I, I'm not like just making the, a one-off. And number two, if I screw up, I have something to back up. You know? <laughs> um, but realistically, it's probably more like a month and a half to get okay. a knife, which yeah. I can live with. I feel like that's pretty reasonable to get a custom, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, a high quality, custom, handmade knife. I mean, I think, I think anyone, anyone would be happy to wait that long for this quality of product for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I try to keep them around like 200 bucks or less for, for my general ones, just because I feel like that's, that's reasonable. And I want to, I want working stiffs to be able to afford something handmade. And yeah. That's, that's a, that's a really good price for a, for a knife. That's for sure. What's your, uh, what's your most popular model, I guess, of your kind of your standard ones? Uh, I think the sharp tail has become the most popular one okay. and that's, uh, I tried to, you know, you can see it on the website. I kind of tried to emulate a sharp tail grouse um, with some of the features, and then I laser burn a, a tail feather onto the side. But that, I think oh, that, cool. that's gotten a lot of love lately. Um, and then real close seconds, just the wing shooter, which is the one I think that I make the most out of. Is, is uh, And that's just like a kind of, I, I think that's a larger bird and trout knife that, like I, I used it to um, dress the the deer I shot last weekend. You know, it's, okay. it's totally big enough to take on that task. Oh, um, nice. But yeah, I think those are the two most popular ones. But like I said, I can I can make any. I'm making a <clears throat> first ever gut hook for somebody, and oh. uh, I don't know. I was really against it. Now I'm I'm not. I'm not so against it anymore. Okay. Really, <laughs> okay. I was like, dude, I don't want to experiment on a customer. And he's sure, like, oh, sure. Please do it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> is it gonna is it gonna require a lot more uh, a lot more time to into the I guess forging process or? It doesn't require that much more time, but it's the the time that's taken is I'm really thinking about everything I do before I do it. Mm. So like I'm I'm really dragging my ass on it because I just want to make sure that. I don't make a bad choice and like, Oh, the, the gape is too, too much for the gut hook or this sure, or that. Okay. You know? Um, honestly, I, I could, I could drag my ass forever on a knife till it's like, <laughs> it's beyond reasonable. Yeah. But, no, you're, you're thinking it through. Um, two more questions I want to ask you on this. So I don't forget, um, sharpening a knife. What are, what are some do's and don'ts with, <laughs> with sharpening, um, knives in general but i guess your your knives as well specifically because there's probably some not some like 
don't do that <laughs> things out there, right? There's, well, there's all the obvious. Don't do, do, do that. Um, my favorite saying is that the best way to keep a knife sharp is to never let it get dull. Oh, okay. So if you get one of my knives brand new or any knife brand new, or you just put a wicked edge on one of your own, don't grind it into the dirt until it's a butter knife, <laughs> you know, give it, give it a, a little touch up when you're done using it. And then this thing, the, this next part here, I think will change a lot of people's lives. You know, probably like it might ruin some people's lives depending <laughs> on how into some, some guys get really into knife sharpening. I mean, it, it's a rabbit hole. Um, I prefer to use a strop and uh, like, you're going to have to explain that. So like imagine every, every gangster movie you've seen where there's, they're at the barber and the guy's running the razor on a piece of leather. Oh, okay. So that's kind of what I like. So oh wow. basically anybody can, anybody can make one, two minutes, take an old leather belt and glue it to a board with the fuzzy side up. So like the, the part of the leather belt that's, that's, Touching Wait a second. Your you're saying you're sharpening a knife with leather? Oh yeah. They've what? been doing it for centuries. Wow. You can do it with cardboard. No way. Yeah, because and, and now this, you know, you're not sharp, you're not sharpening it, you're honing it. Okay. Again, kind of like a, a, on a continual basis, like after you use it, give it a couple runs on this. Yep. And wow. uh so you take the leather, glue it down to a board or nail it to a board, whatever, fuzzy side up, the part of the belt that is is pointing towards your skin, right? The okay. inside of the belt. That's pointing up. That's facing upwards. Go to Ace Hardware and get some green buffing compound. It's in the welding section. Okay. And it's like a it's like a green wax bar and then smear that into the leather. And then use that, you know, watch some YouTube videos. I'm not going to spend the next hour explaining Sure, this, sure. But it's it's way simpler than you think. My mind is and blown right now. you just right use now. that a couple times after after uh, using your knife, and it'll bring the edge back. And, and now, just kind of like running it, just kind of alternating sides, one direction? Yep. Like, uh, wow. imagine you're, uh, I'm terrible at describing this. YouTube <laughs> I, it. No, yeah, I, I, th I think I got a good picture of it. Yeah, it'll yeah, change I, your life. It if really anyone's will. interested, yeah, YouTube that sucker. That is fascinating. I that that surprised me for sure. So that's kind of your go-to, like keep a knife, keeping it sharp. It's it's doing that right. Keeping it sharp because, wow. like, if you imagine that edge is this real, the edge is a really just super thin piece of metal. Like, yeah. if, if you do it right, that that edge is just as thin as it gets, and as you're cutting with it, it gets all bent out of shape. And the more out, bent out of shape you let it get, the more it'll break. Okay. And it'll break down and become dull. So, like, if you can strop it and use that strop to kind of put that edge back in line, it'll keep it sharper longer. And the buffing compound actually has, uh, I, I'm not sure what kind of grit it has in it. I think it's either aluminum oxide. Anyway, it has some type of grit in it that will okay. actually sharpen wow. any uh, little burrs and this, stuff. This, this podcast just took a turn. <laughs> just <laughs> took a turn. <laughs> um, I wish Blue Lock you know, people's minds. 
and it's a general thing. Like some steels are better than others. Okay. Uh, this one kid brought me a, a, a stainless steel, which stainless, like most of my knives are carbon steel, which hold an edge usually better than most stainless steels. Okay. But this kid brought me this just rancid old pocket knife that was, I mean, it looked like it was serrated. It had so many chips in it. <laughs> oh, gosh. And we hit it with a strop a bunch of times, and the parts that weren't chipped became razor sharp again. No way. Yeah, it was pretty wild. I, I was kind oh. of surprised myself. Wow. But, uh, yeah, look up stropping. Okay. And if you're That's struggling with knife sharpening, you know, some people really dig using the Japanese water stones and spending thousands of dollars on their sharpening gear. Oh, but if you're, not, if you're not one of those people and you're, you've always struggled with it, Look up stropping. All right. Dang. Okay. Or hit okay. me up on Instagram and I'll I'll try yeah. to explain better. You should you should do a little um you should do like an Instagram video on this. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Or also yeah. I, was, I was actually thinking about selling strops just to Oh yeah. Because there's a lot of people that aren't DIY inclined. Sure. And, sure, sure. Uh, but it's just so simple to make one. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get much more simple than just gluing a piece of leather to wood and right. going Good. for it. That's um, awesome. Um, one more thing I was going to ask you about, and uh, we got a couple closing things I want to get to, so I got to kind of wrap this up here. Um, but I was going <laughs> to ask you about your, uh, you started doing some shirts, right? And stickers. Yeah. What is the, uh, I got to ask you, what's the cup of pigeon? Oh, well, the cup of pigeon. Um, <laughs> you got to explain that. <laughs> so I was, back to my Gordon setter puppy that the bird launchers freaked him out. Um, I was trying to think of a way to launch a bird without noise. And I realized the pigeon fits perfectly in a McDonald's Coke cup. And so you, you stick the pigeon in the cup and you tie oh, a man. string to it and you give it a good sharp pull and the pigeon flies away. <laughs> and, uh, which also came in handy because like, nobody could buy a pigeon launcher to save their lives. For oh, no. No, they're out of stock everywhere. Yeah. And so if you're, it's literally better than nothing. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you sound like a, like a pretty good DIY guy. Yeah. You know, you, you, I, I'd rather make stuff than buy it usually because I, I don't have money. So I'm usually making it. But uh, oh, yeah, like, man. the cup of pigeons, some people think that it might cause more problems than it solves. But I mean, Come on. It's like, I mean, it, it makes a freaking great t shirt. I got to say that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I think so. I mean, the design on that was every time I see that, I chuckle. But that's, that's my wife's design, by the way. I got it. Oh, is it? That's awesome. Yeah. She, that's really she, cool. <laughs> she worked hard on that. <laughs> it was my idea, but her design. So I love it. Well, tell her, tell her well done because that was, uh, that was very, very nice. Um, well, Mike, one of the things, uh, as you, you probably know, I like to wrap up here with, um, uh, I'd like to ask you about what, what piece of advice would you give the, the rookie uplander out there? Um, you know, maybe someone listening to this right now is, is kind of in the heart of their, their first season. Maybe they just picked up their first dog. Um, just what's a piece of advice you would uh, like to share with someone out there listening? Give up now. <laughs> now, um, my, get out while you can get out while you can before it's too late. Cause this is going to take over your life. I'd say the the thing I always tell people on online when they ask me, you know, for this or that, um, anytime you're hunting any bird species, hunt structure. Hmm. So if you're hunting chucker, like you would obviously go to the tops of the hills and whatnot. If you're hunting sharp tails, 
like I tell people hunt sharp tail, just like checker, like find mm -hmm. a little rise and, you know, just don't go walking out into the flat vastness of the prairie, go find a little rise. The birds are going to be in position to watch something coming from a ways off. And that applies to just about every upland game bird I can think of. It's like, you know, just don't go out there into some, you know, endless space that has no, nothing really going for it. Look for some slight, subtle difference that mm. birds might want to take advantage of, mm. whether it's to watch for predators or to feed. Um, they're always watching for predators. So any type of thing that they can put to their advantage, they will. Um, yeah. If you're hun hunting for huns, like I don't know how many, how many advertisements I've seen, or not advertisements, stories where they're hunting the stubble fields. Don't hunt mm. the stubble fields. Hunt the edges. Mm. Always, always hunt. Figure out what kind of structure there is out there, like a bass fisherman would, mm. and hunt that. Yeah, that's really, really good, solid advice right there. I will say. Yeah, and then leave leave the vast emptiness for the guys that are pros. And if they want to go tackle that, they can. Sure. Dang. That's good, man. I love it. All right, sir. Um, a couple of rapid fire questions for you and uh, we'll bring this thing home. All right. um, so here we go. First one uh, for you, Mike, what came first? The dog, the gun, or the bird? Dog, 100%. Bird. Dog, okay. Bird, kinda close knew. second. Okay, close second. <laughs> kinda, I kind of knew you were going to say that. Um, Mike, what gun are you carrying into the field and why? Um, I started carrying a Benelli ultralight about 10 years ago. And I, I love it because when I point at stuff, it falls out of the sky pretty reliably. <laughs> Wait, that's what a shotgun's meant for? You just point and shoot? Yeah. Like I can actually hit stuff with it. Um, <laughs> and then part of me, like people give me a lot of bs about not having a classic side-by-side -side or this or that oh sure and i kind of enjoy that so <laughs> you kind of like being the rebel yeah i like being the rebel so do you, ever, do you ever get crap for uh having a benelli no benelli's are awesome i know i i agree i think they're fantastic guns a benelli was my first gun i ever owned and i think they're awesome i know people are like oh shoot a benelli <laughs> like yeah. yeah i don't i don't get the whole fanboy stuff or the anti-fanboy stuff uh I got a Benelli Super Black Eagle for duck hunting, and both of them have always been extremely reliable, and that's all yeah. I care about. Yeah, is, you know, reliability. If it if it doesn't go boom every time I pull the trigger, then I don't totally. need it. Now what's what, what good is it? All right, next one. Uh, favorite dog breed besides the ones you own. So it can't be any dog you have owned in the past or currently own. I'm I'm. I hate admitting this out loud on, on a podcast. But <laughs> it's it's out there for the world, man. You said it's a safe place. I'm it really is. intrigued by these English cockers. Okay. I I I want I almost got one like years and years ago when there was a heck of a lot less in the field. <laughs> sure. But I'm just like I'm not one hundred percent convinced that they're that they're gonna live up to the hype, but God, I'm really thinking about getting one. You and uh, an, uh, the other half of America, of oh, the, I know. The, the hunting people. I know. I, I normally, if, if everybody else likes something, I like sure. to go the opposite way. But yeah, yeah. These, these cockers intrigue me. Yeah, no, they they look cool, man. They look cool. Well, it's, that's a popular answer, but it's it's, it's a good one. I, th I think there are some, from what I've seen, again online, 
I, I don't think I've actually ever seen one in person, to be honest. Um, so I can't speak for that, but I think they look cool. Everyone raves about them. So my neighbors have two, like from a really well-known kennel and they're just wonderful little dogs, but they say yeah. they're super clingy. Yeah. Someone, someone else has, I was thinking, uh, Gary Shaw, he was, he was talking to me on the podcast while we were talking the dog was like, wouldn't leave his feet. <laughs> he was like, he's like, look, it's like a, like won't, won't leave me alone. Yeah. So that's my only, that's my biggest concern with cockers is like, yeah. Will, will I be able to leave it in the house? Sure. Go, go somewhere else. Right, right. All right, man, a couple more. Um, one piece of gear you would never hunt without? Uh, it's got to be my Garmin. Ah, good good call there. I mean, that's the most obvious one, right? Um, oh, that's, that's a good. But, yeah, I, the, the Garmin, I, I live and die by that thing. Um, I would – I leave my gun behind – often and only take the garmin just for training situations but yeah they'll save your dog's life they'll save your you know i uh years ago i had a dog get lost overnight and i wouldn't have found you know the garmin lost the signal but i wouldn't have found him without that garmin so wow. uh, but yeah i think the second most important piece of equipment that i wouldn't have because the garmin's so obvious is uh <clears throat> I think I, I use those uh, Surefire earplugs a lot. Okay. Um, they they save my hearing. Are they are they some electronic ones or just? Like no, they're ones? little uh, fourteen dollar. They have those baffles in them that block it. They'll let you hear most sounds, but they'll uh, okay. block out gunshots. Oh, nice. And I think they're they're called uh, just just get on Amazon. Look at uh, Surefire ear protection okay. and they're, they're super comfortable. They never fall out. That's awesome. Uh, I, I got to start wearing those more. Cause I, I've been really bad about wearing, I, I just have like a little, either the orange ones. I have some, I got off of Amazon. They're like 70 bucks on Amazon. They're not electronic, but they have this like some kind of filter technology where you can kind of hear stuff still. But I'll, I'll send you a link for these ones. I can't yeah. remember the name right off the top of my head. I, I guarantee you won't spend 14 bucks on anything better. That's oh, nice. Yeah, send me, <laughs> send me a link if you can. That'd be awesome. Yeah, uh, I, I can look them up too. But, um, yes, take care of your hearing people, <laughs> it's important. Um, all right, just a couple more here. Uh, if you this is a new one I wrote in here, if you could have, uh, oh, okay, this one's specific for you, Mike. Uh, if you could only have one style of the knives you make, which, uh, which model would it be? Uh, it's got to be the wing shooter. Okay. That's it's just my most versatile out of all of them. Your go-to. Yeah, opening boxes to opening deer. Um, you're not going to have to compromise, really. I mean, like the only thing I wouldn't really do with it is try to quarter up an elk, even though I'm sure, sure. you know, if you had sharpening cool tools with it, you could probably do it. Okay. Um, it would probably be miserable with a knife right. that small. Right, right. But uh yeah, really I really enjoy the wing shooter. That's the, okay. I think one of the first ones I made too. Nice, nice. Very cool. Uh your go-to snack on a hunting trip. Go-to snack. Um so uh Northwest Wing Shooters turned me on to Pioneer Pies. What in the world is that? They're New Zealand style pot hand pies, like meat pies, right? Oh my gosh. 
They are amazing. Um, a, a mini, like you get it at a gas station or a grocery store, you order them? Right now, you can get them in Boise, right, if you're you're in Idaho. But you can okay. get them at Albertsons in the deli section. <laughs> okay. So it, you can't just find them anywhere in Albertsons. They're in the deli section. They're not in the deli place. section, people. It's pie-o-near, and they make, like, steak and cheese. Oh, my gosh. Northwest Wing Shooters. Do you have to heat them up? Oh, yeah. You uh, wrap them in foil and put them on a grill. Oh, okay, okay. uh, I'm pretty sure you could wrap them in foil and put them on your engine block. (laughs) And heat them up that way. by the time you get to your hunting spot, it'd be perfect. (laughs) But, man, they're good. That's awesome. Well... I don't know how I'll get one, but maybe someday. <laughs> maybe uh, look, they'll make their way down to Denver. Yeah we, we have, yeah, we just have Kroger down here. Oh, uh, well, maybe you can order them online. But yeah, yeah. buy in your pies, man. All right. I love it. And then last one, uh, beverage of choice after a hunt. <sighs> alcoholic or non-alcoholic? You can go whatever you like. I'm generally drinking sugar-free Rockstar. Oh, <laughs> Rockstar. Oh, yeah. Whew, that's still a thing? It's still a thing. Oh, my gosh. That just, ga- that just gave me the like, goosebumps. Yeah, it'll give, that, it'll give you goosebumps for sure. <laughs> um, no, like, I really, like, it's from back in the day, but, yeah, yeah. I, I like the sugar-free rock stars. If okay. it's alcoholic, then uh, I've been really digging the Montana Whiskey Company's Blackfoot bourbon. That stuff is yummy. Oh, okay. I've not, yeah, not tried that. I think you can only get it in Montana. Oh, son of a. Yeah. It's, it comes in a nice metal container so you can have it rolling around the back of your truck. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I, I love a good uh, love a good bourbon. Usually usually the bourbon I drink says it's made in Canada. So. Ew. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah, well, I'm, Mike, I'm not, not a real big aficionado on bourbon. No, no, I'm, I'm not either. I just buy whatever Costco has. There you go. Um, it's, it's good stuff, man. Um, Mike, this has been a blast, man. Um, thank you for, for jumping on here and, uh, and, and just sharing your story and your knowledge and your passion. Um, love hearing about the Gordons and the, your company and it's been, it's been really fun. So thank you for, uh, for doing this. Absolutely. I appreciate it. I had a good time. And, uh, next time you see Jeremy, punch him in the, in the shoulder. <laughs> I could punch him in the face for you. We're we're, we're close. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not saying, um, I'm not saying face punch him. Just okay. All right. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll just take it to tap. another. I'll take it to another, <laughs> another level. That's good. I haven't talked to him in a couple of days. I wonder if he's alive. Uh, I bet he's he's not going anywhere. He's he's a he's a hardy fella. He just he's, he's a lot. He's, keeps on trucking. He is a lot. A little bit I'm, extra that guy. Try try staying with him for a week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what's uh, what's the best way for people to uh, get in touch with you? Maybe if they have questions, want to check out your knives, uh, what's the best way to connect with you? Most uh, surefire ways, hit me up on Instagram. Second best way, hit me up on the website. Okay. And uh, Instagram. Sorry, I'm talking over you. No, no, sorry. It's it's getting late here. I'm getting sleepy. I was going to say, everyone, get your your cuppo pigeon (laughs) t-shirt. Those things, are, <laughs> those things are bomb all right man well i really appreciate it yeah absolutely mike it's been a blast and uh we'll talk to you soon all right brother all right thank you thanks bye bye
Well, that's a wrap of episode 67 with Mike Thompson from Upland Knife Company. Mike, thank you again for uh, just for your time, your knowledge, your wisdom, and uh, your sense of humor, man. I, uh, I, I truly had a blast uh, chat with you on that one. So uh, thank you. Thank you again. Hey guys, don't forget, if you are enjoying the podcast, would you do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts and uh, leave a rating and review. Uh, Those reviews and rating systems really, really help the algorithm gods of Apple and the podcast world uh, to help get this show out there to more listeners, more hunters, more bird dog lovers, just like you. Uh, So that would mean a ton. Uh, Also, share it on social media. Uh, If you would take two seconds and and share any episode, could be this one, could be a, a past episode, Share it on your social media, and whether it's a post, a story, and just say what, what what you enjoyed about that episode. What inspired you? What what did you take away from that episode? Tag the Upland Rookie Podcast. I'd love to reshare some of those as well. Again, it would just mean a lot uh, to help get this show out there more. Uh, follow us along on Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. YouTube. Uh, I have a couple videos up there. Nothing crazy yet. Um, just been uh, been a little busy here, but. Anyways, guys, hope everyone's doing well. Thanks so much again for uh, the support, for tuning in. Uh, love, uh, love doing these. Love chatting with you guys each week, and it uh, means a lot. So anyways, until next time, go put some miles on those boots and follow your favorite bird dog. Take care.